three years ago, I was speaking at the Gideon's National Convention in Birmingham. And in their program, they advertised me as the longtime chairman of the Personal Finance Society, which is a prestigious professional body representing over 35,000 people engaged in financial planning. It is actually quite possible that some of you here may even be members and possess some of the rigorous qualifications that this august body requires. I actually think the confusion happened uh, over the initials. I was chair of PFS, but that actually stood for Prepared for Service, actually the founder of PFS. Um, my old boss, Bev Savage, is seated in the congregation. I am uh, so grateful to Bev for his friendship and care and love. He, uh, it is super to catch up with Bev. And Bev uh, started while he was working for the FIEC, this particular course, along with Colin Smith, called PFS, Prepared for Service, a modular training course for Christians. <laughs> But I wasn't the chair of the Personal Finance Society. In fact, when Kath, my wife, heard about this, she roared with laughter. My skills in personal finance are next to zero. I am the most unlikely candidate to be chair of that particular body. So I wasn't the man that some of them thought I was. And let me tell you this. Neither is the Lord, whom we're worshipping, the God that some of us think he is. You see, some of us here have domesticated the living God. We've shrunk him down to manageable proportions. We've tamed him. We've shoehorned him into our neat categories. He's become a theological definition. He's become a social convention, an enjoyable hobby. Look, we need to grasp, along with the Pevensey children in Narnia, the untamable nature of our God. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And certainly when we open our Bibles and read some of the songs that are written there, we realize that men like King David certainly had a big view of the living God. Just listen again to those words that Adam had just read to us from Psalm 96. Let me just read the first six verses. David says, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. You see, the psalmist has a big view of God, and he is passionate that others should share his joy, 
his wonder. And could I say, I think that's what we all need as well. We need a clear. We need a big. We need an intoxicating grasp of the wonder of the living God. That's why over these next two Sunday mornings, we'll be concentrating on a verse that I think should shape the agenda of each believer, a verse that should be the heart longing of every true follower of Jesus Christ. And you see it on screen. It's going to be there as we go through. This is what we're going to be looking at. Declare his glory among the nations. And I think we need to unpack what uh, the psalmist is saying. We need to marinate in these truths. We need to let them soak into the very fiber of our spiritual lives. Or if you want to change the metaphor, we need to lift up this diamond to the light and see its multifaceted beauty. So I'm going to start this morning by looking at what it is that we should be declaring. Then next Sunday, we'll consider how we should declare it. And maybe at some point in the future, we'll think about where we should declare it, because it declares all nations, declare his glory among the nations. So, okay, what is it that we should be declaring? As we come to God's word, what is it that we should be declaring? Well, the answer is there in front of us. Declare his glory. But actually, this is where our problem lies. What on earth does that mean? It seems to be one of those Christian expressions, you know, glory, that we grow up with. But we can rarely define. It, it, it seems like something sort of big and shiny. But as soon as we try and put it into words, it seems as if we're trying to nail jelly to a wall. You know, it just doesn't work. Do you remember your glory Days, as you understand glory, when things went well, when there were particular times of triumph and achievement, when there were days of lost innocence, days of inexhaustible energy, days of long, hot, uncomplicated summers. I understand there may have been such a day in Edinburgh in its history where you have that long, hot summer and you say, those were the glory days. And no doubt your mind travels back to those times when we think about glory. You think, those were the glory days. My own experience of glory was being brought up in northeast London and being taken to see the double-winning Spurs side in 1961 as a five-year-old. And for me, that was, that was glory. Uh, and ever since then, as some of you know, I've been a keen Spurs fan with all its ups and downs and downs and downs. And, and when you go to White Hart Lane, whether the old White Hart Lane or the new building, you will find ringing the hoardings Spurs motto. The game is about glory. And uh, when you go to a home game or an away game, it will be the song Glory, Glory, Tottenham Hotspur that is sung there. Glory! But that understanding of glory is harking back to the past. However, when we come to talk about the glory of God, we discover that's not how the Bible writers use this expression. We need to understand that when the Bible writers use that word glory, they do so in two ways. Firstly, 
it's used in the sense of describing what God is like, what theologians call the attributes or the characteristics of God. Things like his beauty and splendor, his holiness and power, his supremacy and rule, his majesty and compassion, his attributes. And, and they say glory comes in at times to one of those categories. Uh, in fact, just listen to these verses that will come up. They'll be on screen. And you'll get an idea of when glory is used in this way in the Bible. For example, 1 Chronicles 29 verse 11. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. You see, their glory is used in that descriptive way. Psalm 8, verse 1. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. And he's arguing that the heavens give a description and understanding of the character of God. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, fall short of his revealed character, his attribute of holiness. And in the Old Testament, we discover that this Hebrew word for glory, the word kavod, occurs 144 times. And when you go into the New Testament in Greek, its equivalent word, doxa, appears 115 times. But this word for glory is predominantly used in another way. Not to describe God's attributes, his characteristics. Not in a general way, as it were, to describe his awesome character conceptually. But it's used in a specific way to refer to his character being revealed physically. And so when you get references to light and fire and cloud, it is often summarized by the word glory. Let me try and illustrate what I, I mean. Let's have a look at some of these verses. Exodus 16, verse 10. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. Now, do you get that? This is, this is tangible, this is real, this is substantial. It is not an attribute. It, it, it's something you could, you could touch. Exodus 24, 16. And the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai for six days. The cloud covered the mountain. And on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. There it is. It is, it is real. It is tangible. It is not just a Description, it is something you could see, something you could touch. Verse later, Exodus 24, 17. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Exodus 40, verses 34 to 35. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. It had substance to it. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Just one more reference. Isaiah 4 verse 5. Then the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night over everything. The glory will be a canopy. 
So we're not talking about here the attributes of God. We are talking about something which is more solid, substantial. You've actually maybe heard this referred to as the Shekinah glory. That, that was a phrase that was used later by the rabbis to describe the presence of God in that pillar of cloud and fire. You, you, you'll remember, uh, if you know something about Old Testament, you'll, you'll know how the history goes. The Israelites, as it were, were being held as slaves in Egypt, and then they were able to leave Egypt and go towards the promised land as God had commanded. Uh, and you, you'll read how the glory of God appeared to lead the people across the sea and through the wilderness pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. It was real. It was the glory of God. And how at Sinai, they got them to Sinai, this mountain, and Israel encamped around the mountain. And the glory of God comes in the cloud and fire on top of the mountain to speak with Moses in the sight of the people. And and this picture of Israel encamped around the glory of, of God it's telling us an important truth. That it is God dwelling in the midst of his people. You see what happened? The people would then set out on their march again. The glory cloud of God's presence would go with them. Uh, and when they camped, they put the tabernacle down first. They camped around it in a particular order. And the cloud, the fire, would settle above the tabernacle in the middle. And it would remind them that God was there in their midst. And eventually when they got to the promised land and had settled in the promised land and eventually Solomon built a temple, they dedicated that temple and what happens? The glory of God, we're told, filled the temple. It was a picture to Israel. God was in their midst. So, do you get it? The glory of God is often a reference to the amazing miracle that the infinitely holy and powerful God comes to dwell with his people in all their sin and failure. Now, this really is glorious. This is astounding. This got God's people excited. It was certainly the case for David as he reflected on it. You see, it's in this specific sense, rather than the more general definition of glory, that we're to understand what it is that David wants us to declare. Declare his glory among the nations. And we know that because of the lines that surround Psalm 96, verse 3. Have another look at them. Let me just read verses 2 to 3 to you. Sing to the Lord, praise his name, proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all people. Now, this is Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry operates according to a thing called parallelism, in which surrounding lines repeat, develop, or explain what the poet wants to say. And what do the surrounding lines to declare his glory say? What's another way of understanding this phrase better? Well, proclaim his salvation. Declare his marvelous deeds. Deeds. So you see, the glory we're to declare isn't something vague and general. We've got to go beyond big cliches, however wonderful they may be, and to declare that our God 
in all his infinite glory and wonder and splendor, is best seen and known through the fact that he pleases to make himself known to and dwell with sinful people. Now that's glory. And incidentally, this is actually where it gets even more exciting. That word for salvation, you noticed it? It's there, proclaim his salvation, gives us a clue as to where God's saving glory is most clearly seen, where it finds its perfect embodiment. You see, in Hebrew, that word for salvation is Yeshua. Now, does that ring any bells with you? Of course it does. That's where we get the name Jesus. Matthew 1, 20 to 21, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, that's Joseph in a dream, and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Yeshua, Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, Joshua, Yeshua, the Lord saves. And in John's summary verse of the birth of Jesus, he says this in John 1.14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now look what he says. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And by the way, when John says that Jesus made his dwelling among us, it could more literally be translated as Jesus tabernacled among us and we have seen his glory. You see, John deliberately likens the coming of Jesus to the Shekinah glory. Just as the glory of God was evident when the tabernacle was erected in the center of the Israelite camp, so Jesus is the perfect representation of God amongst sinful people. It is in Jesus that we see the glory of God. And and, and Luke gets in on this as well. He wants us to see the connection. Listen to the words of Simeon when he holds baby Jesus in the temple. Luke 2, 29 to 32. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, your Yeshua, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. You see, here's here's Simeon. He's holding this little baby in his arms and by the Holy Spirit, he's aware of the one who is cradled there and he says, this is it. This one is the glory of God. This is the one who was promised. This is the one who'd been pictured. It is Jesus. Jesus. The light of God's glory. Jesus, the perfect embodiment of God's glorious character. Jesus, the complete sum of all God's majestic attributes. Jesus, the saviour of sinners. Actually, we we see this pictured again when Jesus was transfigured before three of his disciples. Listen to Matthew's account and and get a glimpse of, of what he's describing. Matthew 17, verses 1 to 3. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led him up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. Picture the scene. His face shone like the sun... 
and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Now, it's a fascinating uh, few verses. Do you notice Matthew doesn't name the mountain that they went up? He could have done that easily. It was probably Tabor or even more likely Hermon. But that's not his point. He's drawing another parallel. He wants this high mountain to resonate with his Jewish readers so that they think of Sinai, of fire, of Moses, of glory. For Jesus is the Shekinah glory. He is God's salvation. And on that day when they nailed him to the cross and where he died in the place of sinners as the obedient, as the spotless sacrifice for sin, we read that the light was extinguished. Glory was hidden. Darkness covered the land. Yet three days later, as the first rays of the morning sun were breaking over that eastern horizon, the women find the stone rolled away. They find that the tomb is empty. God's salvation had been accomplished. And for the world now, there is a message of glory, of salvation, of peace through faith in Jesus Christ. And when Christians by his wonderful saving grace, end up in heaven. Brothers and sisters, you know what? We all live in the light of his glory. God will dwell with his people. We'll see Jesus. We'll serve in the light of his Shekinah glory. Uh, it, it's put like this in Revelation. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, please forgive me if I've labored this point. But it's just so wonderful that I don't want you to miss it. David tells us, this is the verse we're looking at, to declare his glory among the nations. So what is this glory we are to declare? It is Jesus. He's the one we're to declare. He's the one we're to point to. He's the one who must be the center of all our energies. He's the one who must fuel our passion. Now, you might think there's such an obvious point to make. But forgive me, because I think we forget so quickly. You see, our work is not about safeguarding the values of a Christendom long gone. That's what some churches, that's what some Christians think it's about. Brothers and sisters, we're not here to fight for a way of life that has more to do with morality than Christian principles. No. Brothers and sisters, the Bible says we are aliens. We are aliens and strangers. The Bible says we're the refugees. The Bible says we're the ones living in exile. We're not here to take a stand for a way of life. We're those who point to the way to life. We declare Jesus Christ and him 
crucified. You see, with all the competing spectacles in our world today, with all its distractions and with all its attractions, with all the binge TV, with all the celebrity news, with all the virtue signaling events, the one who should fill our gaze and fill our hearts is Jesus. He's beyond compare. And he stoops low to be the friend and saviour of failures and rebels and screw-ups like you and like me. Brothers and sisters, that's glory. You see, he is beyond compare. If, if you are here and you say, I, I didn't, don't know this Jesus, then could I commend him to you? There is no one else like him. Everything else that you're chasing and, and following after, what has it got in comparison with the glory of God, Jesus Christ, the saviour of sinners, the one who took the penalty for failures, the one who stood in their place, the one who bore the wrath of God, the one who lives and liberates. He towers over everything. I, I, I saying as I was walking into church for the nine o'clock service I just you know look up at the tower as one does some ways it's a nice tower I don't think it's a particularly special tower but hey it's supposed to be modeled after some Italian church in Florence that, that's that's fine but on the top of the green stuff the green pointed thing what do they call it the pergola um, we have a cross now that just may be one of those architectural show-off things that you put but actually there is something about it you see, the cross of Jesus towers over this church. It towers over our lives. We are here for the glory of King Jesus. And it towers over our city. Well, maybe towers is not, is not the right word, but you know what I mean. We want Edinburgh to know about Jesus. If we're going to declare to them anything, it's not how they can increase their pension contributions. It is how Jesus Christ can be known and loved and honored, that he is the one who their hearts ache for and need. It is Jesus, and we want that message to go out beyond Edinburgh into Scotland and into the UK and into Europe and into this world of ours. Declare his glory among the nations. There is no one like this Savior. And if you are here and you don't know him, I would plead with you. Get to know him, for his offer of salvation is free and open to those who will come. And if you are here and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, please don't be distracted by all the glittering prizes that litter our way. Oh, treasure, cherish Christ. Know him better. Love him more. Let the scales from fall from your eyes as you seek him through the words and through prayer. Love him and cherish him and declare him. As you go into this coming week with all that it holds, for you teachers having a deserved break for others just continuing to labor at whatever you do may Jesus be the one that you long to live out and to speak out for we sang a, a song earlier I was told that not everyone would know that particular hymn now the everlasting word it surprised me I sort of grew up on it but maybe that says more about me than about you but listen again to these words. This is some deep theology. This is glorious truth. Let it sink in. Thou art the everlasting word, the Father's only Son, 
God manifestly seen and heard, and heaven's beloved one in thee most perfectly expressed. The Father's glory shine of the full deity possessed, eternally divine. True image of the infinite whose essence is concealed. Brightness of uncreated light, the heart of God revealed. But the high mysteries of thy name and angels grasp transcend. The Father only glorious claim the Son can comprehend. Throughout the universe of bliss, the center thou and Son. The eternal theme of praise is this. To heaven's beloved one, worthy, O Lamb of God, art thou that every knee to thee should bow. Let's pray.